Hello and welcome to another episode of the Burt's Books Podcast. Uh, in today's episode, I'm afraid not another book review. I will get to them. I am just so stretched for time at the moment, which is a great thing. There's so many good things to do. But I do also want to tell you about some brilliant books that I have been reading lately. One of them is The Red Monarch by Bella Ellis, a.k.a. Rowan Coleman. It is the third in the Bronte Mysteries series of books where the Bronte sisters and their brother, Branwell, so we've got Charlotte, Jane, not Jane, that's um, thinking of Jane Eyre, Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre. We've got Charlotte, Anne, and we've got Emily, and along with Branwell, they are investigating mysteries, not always murders. I think it's been um, murders or deaths in previous books. That is not necessarily the case in this book. It is the case of a missing jewel and a kidnapped husband and a trip to London. Well, I'm not going to tell you about that too much because coming up, uh, I've got an interview with Rowan Coleman herself and she's going to tell us more about the book. It's coming up on the other side of this music. I am joined today on the Burt's Books podcast by Rowan Coleman, a.k.a. Bella Ellis, whose latest novel, The Red Monarch, based on the Bronte sisters investigating crimes, is out today. Uh, Bella, Rowan, how are you? Hi. Hi from both of us. We're good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Um, you're very <laughs> welcome. It's good to have you here. You were actually... Um, way way back uh, a couple of years ago when when we were allowed to meet up in public you were uh first guest on my other podcast the shelf life and um yeah. big inspiration for you starting this podcast so uh, uh I, think, I think we discussed the possibility of doing it over tea and cake in oxford good oh yeah those were the days weren't they spontaneous <laughs> yeah, tea and cake remember leaving the house <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Why don't you tell us, let's get started, and tell us a bit about uh, the Bronte Mysteries and specifically The Red Monarch, the third book, which is uh, just out now. The Red Monarch is the third novel in the Bronte Mysteries series, although all of the novels can be read as a standalone. Um, and the idea of the Bronte Mysteries is it they imagine that before the Bronte sisters were world-renowned authors, they were amateur sleuths, um, which is an idea that came to me a few years ago. And one that I think is eminently possible. They were all very brilliant, curious, indomitable women. And um, I think to myself, you know, they definitely could have been brilliant amateur detectives. And there's no evidence that they were amateur detectives, but there's also no evidence that they weren't. Um, and so I go on that basis and write this, these novels um, around building sort of fictional stories around the biographical facts of their life. So they are quite historically accurate, as, as historically accurate as they can be. And then in the bits of time and space that we don't know what they were up to, I give them a mystery to solve. And then in the Red Monarch, um, so I've, I've, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because I read the Red Monarch and I was, I haven't looked it up, I haven't done any research because I thought I'll ask, I'll get it straight from the horse's mouth as to which bits were 
<laughs> sort of the real elements and which bits had been coloured in. But th this this story finds um, heading to London after uh, after Anne receives a letter from somebody she used to teach asking for help. Yeah. Did they really? Right. Uh, is there evidence that they did all trek off to London together? No. Uh, what <laughs> what did happen? is that uh, Anne and Branwell used to teach for, uh, used to tutor and be governess for the Robinsons. Um, Branwell famously had an extramarital affair with Mrs. Robinson um, and he got fired from his job with huge amounts of scandal for, I think it was 20, it was 20 pounds. And Anne was then obliged to resign from her job for six pounds. Um, I, which is a little, little historical detail that's always annoyed me. Um, and um, a few months later, the eldest daughter of the Robinsons, Lydia, um, eloped. And that is true. She eloped with an actor called Harry Roxby or Henry Roxby. He's, he's called Harry um, as a nickname, who she first set eyes on, on the stage in Scarborough, where he was um, a rather dashing young actor, they ran away together to get married. That's all true. Um, everything else that happens after that in this, in this book, in The Red Monarch, is kind of fiction, but also it answers quite a lot of Bronte myths and Bronte questions with fiction. So it's kind of like my fictional answers to some of the questions that we've always uh, asked ourselves as Bronte fans or casual Bronte acquaintances even. <laughs> so you <laughs> have to be a Bronte fan to want to read this book. Um, basically it's um, it is a Victorian mystery set in London. Um, and it, and they, they sort of launch into the into the world of Dickens, actually. Um, they arrive in 18, summer of 1846 in, um, in Euston, Euston Station, as it was in the olden days, which I must say is much nicer than it is now. And I mean, much more grand. I don't know if nice is the right word. <laughs> and they end up going to find Lydia, whose husband, Harry, has been kidnapped um, by some shady, criminals of the London underworld and she has a week to return to them what they say Harry has stolen a jewel but Lydia doesn't know what the jewel is where it is or anything about it she has no idea how to save her husband's life the only person that she knows who was at all sensible and a, and a good influence on her life as she was growing up is Anne Bronte. So she writes to Anne and asks for her help. She's been cut off by her mum, which is true. Um, her father recently died, cut her out of his will. That's also true. Um, and she's stuck without a friend in the world, pregnant, living at the Adelphi Theatre in Covent Garden, um, in fear for her husband's life with no idea what to do. And that's where our sisters sail in to investigate. Now uh, I mentioned this to you before um, that actually out of all three of the sisters uh, Emily in in your book certainly is my favourite she's got a bit of a, a kick to her and actually although it's Anne that gets the letter this feels like it's Emily's book 
I think this is Emily's book. Yeah, there was there's an idea that I had while I was writing this that I really wanted to um, I really wanted to do. And there are two things that I found out about Emily uh, while I was writing this. And the first thing is that Emily was a crack shot. Patrick, Bron Patrick Bronte, Emily's dad, taught Emily how to shoot with his um, flintlock pistols instead of Branwell because Branwell was just not very good. Poor Branwell. Um, <laughs> but Emily was brilliant. So she, he taught her how to shoot and she was, you know, she was a proper pistol backing Bronte. I don't think people know that enough about her. Um, it's like legendary. Not only is she now stalking the malls with pockets in her skirts and a dog at her side, but a flintlock pistol as well. It's just wonderful. Um, so I, that kind of gave her a bit of a bit of an edge, a bit of a swashbuckle that I really wanted for her in this story. Um, and the other thing is that in the 1930s, there was a biography written about Emily, which is a great biography actually called um, The Life and Passionate Death of Emily Bronte. And in it, the biographer Virginia Moore thinks that she's discovered the name of Emily Bronte's secret love. Um, she's one of the first people to go and see the small notebook of Emily's poems that's kept at the British Library. And she goes and reads it and it's annotated with Charlotte's tiny, tiny handwriting. And above one of the poems it says is the name Louis Parencel. And Virginia's like, oh my gosh, I've discovered, I've discovered the name of Emily's secret lover. Um, and publishes this novel, including this, this novel, this biography, including this revelation. To be fair to Virginia, Prior to the chapter of the revelation, she also suggests that it's entirely possible that Emily is gay, which, given it was written in the 1930s, is quite um, revolutionary, uh, quite a revolutionary theory to put forward. But then in the following chapter, she says, but I think maybe she was in love with Louis Parencel. Well, it wasn't until after the biography was published that somebody else went to look at the notebooks in the British Library and saw that it actually read Love's Farewell, and um, Virginia had just misread it. There was no Louis Parencel. However, there is now. <laughs> well, that was <laughs> so going to be my big question. <laughs> who is Louis Parencel? <laughs> there is now, because he is the character, uh, one of the main characters, an actor um, with a shady past who works at the Adelphi Theatre in Covent Garden, who Emily becomes um, quite attached to, despite herself. So yes, no spoilers, but um, I never, I'm always really careful that I would never, that my Bronte sisters, my fictional Bronte sisters never do anything that I don't think they would have done in real life. Um, but there is an undeniable attraction between Emily and Louis Parencel. Definitely. And I think it, I mean, it shows it, as you're reading it um, and Emily seems oblivious to the fact that he possibly quite fancies her. Um, but, yeah. but there is this chemistry between them and actually she, you could tell that she likes him even as just a, a sort of this sort of entertainment. It's, it's sort of presented itself to her. Um, I've, I've, I'm glad that. Yeah, that's for me. That's a 
that's what would attract her to somebody. It's not so much if they're handsome or witty or even if they are, you know, male or female. It's that kind of the very unusualness about him and uh, exotic past and the places that he's been and the things that he's done. She just finds absolutely fascinating. Now, I feel like we could probably talk about uh, various elements of this book. Um, and, and me asking you, was this bit real? Was this bit real? Uh, we can do that all night. <laughs> um, but I feel we might be treading into spoiler territory if we do. Um, so there is I'll, a note I'll... in the back of the book that tells you what's real and what's not. <laughs> so, so one last question then I'll have for you okay. is, um, did Charlotte Bronte really meet Charles Dickens? Not that we know of. But she really didn't like him. <laughs> and I don't know why she really didn't like him. We just know that she didn't. So this is my little fictional reason why Charlotte didn't like Charles Dickens. And that's not a spoiler. There is a brief, brief cameo uh, from him. I couldn't really write anything set in in London in the 1850s and not have Charles Dickens in it. No, no, <laughs> quite. Would seem rude. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think out of the three books, and I don't know if it's because um, I'm more familiar with London than I am with Yorkshire, or if because this one concentrates on Emily more, I think this might have been my favourite of the three so far. Um, Thank you. How do you, do you have a favorite of the three? Um, I, I really like, I did enjoy this because of the, I think I enjoyed it because it was fun to give, to take them to London on a romp, um, on, an, on a, mystery, a mystery solving romp. And because the, the backdrop of the novel is just brilliant. <laughs> so, I mean, the, I love I love Yorkshire. I love how I love the kind of the wild moors, the haunted manor houses, the underground um, complex of caves, all of which are things that really existed that are that feature in the last two novels. Um, but for this one, we got to look at London on the cusp of you know industrialization, I suppose, and there's still the George, the Georgian London is still very much there. Um, and but decrepit, and that I loved the idea of the rookeries, these these areas of London, these slum areas of London, but particularly St Giles Rookery, that was that had at one time been a fairly well-to-do part of town to live in, and it had just fallen over a hundred years into absolute decay and poverty and a horrible dirty, rat-infested, grim, once grand houses falling to pieces. Um, and these are the, the backdrops that we know so well from Dickens novels like um, Oliver Twist, for example. Um, and the Adelphi Theatre was just the funnest. So Harry, Harry Roxby's dad was the general manager at the Adelphi Theatre. So Although we don't know that he definitely went there, there's, there's, you know, there's nothing to say that he wouldn't have gone there for a bit. Um, and it was such a fun backdrop because mid 
19th century theatre was just really fun. <laughs> it was before, it was before music halls really kicked in. Um, and it was just in between the cusp of the only reason anybody went to the theatre was to see Shakespeare or go to an opera, um, but just before musicals really happened in big style. And the, the playbills of the sort of 1845 or 1846 theatres were just really fun. And that meant I could have a tiger. <laughs> and that was just delightful. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was fun. I think the whole setting of the Adelphi Theatre really adds an element to, of fun to this book and, and adventure. And, and they're kind of, they're, they're basically living in a room above the theatre. The whole thing yeah. is described as being quite rickety and as a reader you're thinking, oh, they're going to fall through to the stage any minute. It all yeah. feels like it's going to fall down. Yeah, yes. And I think it has, in fact, since since then, the Adelphi Theatre had burnt to the ground once. That was the second incarnation of the Adelphi Theatre, and I'm pretty sure it's burnt to the ground since then as well. Um, and also the best thing that I found out while I was writing it is that um, there are two ghosts, and one of them is the ghost of Joseph Grimaldi, the clown. There was a clown ghost, Alex. What more could a person ask for? I mean, clowns are scary <laughs> enough. <laughs> So it's delighted. So we'll um we'll st we're still clear of uh, the red monarch for for now, uh for, for want of giving away any more spoilers. But um are you reading anything at the moment that you're enjoying? I am. I am reading um a non-fiction book called The Haunting of Alma Fielding. Is that right? Have that's I got right. the title right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, and it's just brilliant. It's so fascinating. I think it's by Kate Summerscale. Um, I'm really, I, given that I am an author, I'm terrible at remembering the titles <laughs> of authors' books. But um, I'm enjoying it so much. It's about um, a real life poltergeist case of the 1930s. And it's sort of about this, the haunting. Um, so if you're fan of the Battersea Poltergeist podcast, you'd really like it, I think. Um, but it's also about the investigator that is looking into it and, and his beliefs and what he needs. And it's also very much a sort of social history of the, of the, of Britain between the wars and just between, just before World War II and all of the influencing factors that made a fascination in ghost stories so um such a big deal then I mean everybody was really madly into it and it was like headline news and um it's really fascinating sort of portrayal of why this woman becomes embroiled in, in the center of this podcast story so I'm massively enjoying that do you um I mean there are ghostly presences in in the, in a lot of your books or sort of hints of the supernatural yeah. Um, do you enjoy that that sort of gothicness? I do very much. I mean, I think that kind of that's a real Bronte trademark. Um, if you think about Jane Eyre, it's obviously very very gothic. But I think one of the reasons that I first fell in love with gothic fiction, supernatural fiction, ghost stories, um, horror is because of the red room scene in Jane Eyre where little Jane is 
locked into the red room by her nasty Aunt Reed um, and essentially thinks she's being haunted by her dead uncle. And she's absolutely terrified. She's hysterical with terror. And I first read it when I was about the same, era, same age as little Jane. And um, I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> and I was, but also at the same time, I was completely thrilled. And then there's another scene later on in Jane Eyre where um, it's, it's Bertha who, uh, spoilers, sorry, is in <laughs> the secret wife, secret wife in the attic comes down uh, to have a look at Jane while she's sleeping. Jane wakes up and sees this, this horrific face looming over her and who blows the candle out. And you just think, that's terrifying. <laughs> it's really scary. Um, and they loved it. They, you know, they leaned heavily into that sort of, Slightly, I mean, obviously there's Kathy's ghost, Wuthering Heights, and um, they were brought up at the knee of their housekeeper, Tabby, who filled them with folk, folklore, folk tales, and, um, and ghostly happenings, as well as their papa, who taught them how to be good Christian women. So they were very much parallel, they had very much two strong parallel influences on their lives, and you can see both of them in all of their work. Um. Yeah, because you just mentioned her, I will say that like, I, I did feel, I, I felt the absence of Tabby. I, I wish she'd gone to London <laughs> with them. <laughs> I know. I miss Tabby too, because she's so great in it. I, I shouldn't really say this about myself, should I? I love her so much in the Diabolical Bones. Um, she, she's just brilliant. She's like the sort of, the sort of Yorkshire Giles. You know, like Giles for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Tabby yes. is the Giles figure. <laughs> <laughs> in the yes. trees. She just Brilliant. knows everything and knows everyone. Um, knows knows where you need to go if you have to go and see a witch. Um, and, uh, but never fear, she's back. She's back for a book four, um, which is going to go back to Yorkshire, I think. And um, I'm just literally planning it now, but there'll be plenty of Tabby. And I think a big dollop of Patrick in this one as well. So that uh, leads us nicely on to my next question. I was going to ask, Bella Ellis has written three books in the last three years, but Rowan Coleman has been surprisingly quiet. Um, so are we, <laughs> are we getting another Bella? Is it going to be next year or is there a We're Rowan We're getting another way? Bella, but you're also getting another Rowan. It's two Wonderful. for the price of one. I haven't really been quiet. I've just been beavering away for a long time on, on a particular idea that I've had. Again, I had it a long time ago and it's just taken me uh, quite a, it's taken a while to grow and to cook. Um, and also I've been having lots of Bonte fun, which obviously has slowed me down a little bit, but I have in fact delivered an awful to my agent and that will be um, coming out next year, I suppose. Yeah, I can't tell you exactly when, but it has a home um, and I'm looking forward to it. Is there anything you can uh, tease us with about the plot? I will only tell you that it is an epic love story, and that's all. <laughs> love, love an epic love story. Sign me up. <laughs> uh, so then, Bronte Mysteries 4, is there anything you could tell us about that one? Do you know, not really, because... <laughs> I'm just about to start work on Bronte Mysteries 4. Um, I know it's going to be in Haworth. I think it might involve a poisoner um, because there was a famous, a famous Haworth poisoner. Um, 
Unfortunately, the actual real life Howarth poisoner was caught and uh, quite quickly. So <laughs> I have to embellish on that a little bit. Um, it will be in the in Red Monarch, they've just had their first collection of poetry published that they paid for, to have published. Um, by book four, they, they will know that it's only sold four copies um, and they'll be sort of battling that disappointment and getting on with writing their novels. There's a point, I can't quite decide where, <laughs> there's a point in the Charlotte's life where they all send off their books. They've all sent off their books, um, Agnes Grey, Wuthering Heights and Charlotte's birth novel, The Professor. And Charlotte's book gets rejected. The professor gets rejected everywhere. Um, and then Charlotte, not doing what I would do, which is, you know, go to bed for a year and cry. Charlotte writes Jane Eyre. So, um, and this is kind of an amazingly brilliant, inspirational kind of moment, I think, that I really want to put into a book. But I'm not sure if it will be this book or the next book. I have to, I have to decide. So you see, it's, it's all very fluid. <laughs> That's good. It's good to uh, keep it fluid. Um, are you running out of time <laughs> that you can set these detective stories in? Is there a limited period between? Because the last three have kind of taken yeah. place over sort of 18 months or so. How yeah. far away from, uh, how far away are we uh, from a can't do any more? It's 1848 is the cutoff for um, Emily and Branwell. Um, so I think I wouldn't take it past 1848. I could, so yeah, like you say, I probably, I'm not, I've got to decide now where, where I want to put the next novel in terms of the biographical things that are happening around them. Um, and there are lots of really interesting things that are happening that I would like to put in. Uh, for example, that when Charlotte is writing Jane Eyre, Patrick's um, having an operation on his both his eyes to remove cataracts without any, you know, anesthetic in 1846, um, you know, <laughs> it's quite amazingly, quite amazingly brave and it was successful um, and she was nursing him or with him when he, when he traveled to Manchester to have that done and writing Jane Eyre in the, um, in the lodging house at the same time. So that would be quite cool to put in. Um, I would really like to get them somehow to Brussels, even though they were in Brussels prior to the start of the series. If I could sneak them back to Brussels, I would definitely love to do that because it would be so fun and interesting. That'd be nice. Pop them on the Eurostar. They'll, they'll be fine. <laughs> Pop them on the Eurostar. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody will know. <laughs> yes. So, yes. I sound a bit vague, but what's going to happen in the next two weeks is that I'm going to make the plan. I'm looking forward to seeing <laughs> looking forward to seeing where it goes next. Um, Bella slash Rowan. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Good luck with uh, The Red Monarch. Hopefully it sells lots and lots and lots. Well, a massive thank you to Rowan Coleman, aka Bella Ellis, for her time and telling me all about her passion for the Brontes. Uh, I really do enjoy this series. I think if you haven't read it, do check it out. Uh, it's got 
uh, a very sort of a, a Victorian style to it. It feels like it could have been written over 150 years ago. So uh, if, if historical fiction is your thing, check it out. Even if it's not, give it a go, because this might just be the book that changes your mind. It's called uh, The Red Monarch. It's the third book in the Bronte Mysteries, but you don't have to have read the previous two to read this one. You can get copies with signed book plates when you order them at burtsbooks.co.uk. And of course, the previous two books are there available to order as well. Please do get in contact. Let me know what you've been reading. Let me know what you thought of this episode. I want to know if this is the sort of thing you would like more of or whether you just prefer me banging on on my own uh, please email me Bert, at burtsbooks.co.uk or you can find me on twitter at, Bert, Bert, at burtsbooks that's everything for uh, this episode um, hopefully some reviews coming up next week please do rate, review and subscribe so that when I do release the next episode you will know about it instantly and you won't miss a single one. That's it. That's everything. Just all that is left for me to say is keep reading.